Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this week's episode is an episode I am particularly excited about. A few months ago, the crew at the Franco-American Collection at the University of Southern Maine started a podcast project called Schema Franco-American. I hope I came even close. Or in English, Franco-American Pathway. And I'm assuming many listeners of this podcast have already checked it out. And if not, please do yourself a favor. As soon as you finish this episode, you need to binge listen absolutely everything they have done so far because it is incredible. And I am thrilled to be able to speak to the three super talented individuals behind this project. Julia Rhinelander, Anna Faraday, and Maureen Perry. Julia, Anna, and Maureen, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Now, before we get all talking about this really awesome uh, project, I'd like to get, quickly get kind of get your stories. I think it's interesting. So I'll go in order. Um, the order, actually, which everybody appears on the website for the podcast. <laughs> uh, so, Julia, I'd like to start with you then. Can you tell us kind of where you grew up? My name is Julia Rhinelander. I was born and raised in Maine. I grew up in a little town in Western Maine called Newry, and I went on to get my undergraduate degrees from the University of Southern Maine in French and in English. Um, I graduated in 2014. I taught high school and middle school French for uh, five years here in Portland, and then I went on to get my master's degree in French literature from Middlebury, uh, from Middlebury College, and I, uh, for that degree, I actually lived at their campus in Paris, and it was like a dream Dream. I'd always wanted to go and I always wanted to live. Uh, it had that been... sounds sick. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny, actually. So my um, my introduction, I am I disclaimer, I am not Franco. Uh, <laughs> I, I started learning French when I was in middle school and I just loved it. Um, but one of the big reasons I took it is that I have some extent, my, um, one of my older brothers, uh, married a Quebecois woman. And when I was, I'm like the baby baby of the family. So okay. I was pretty young when they got married and, um, I lived with them for several summers when my niece was first born and we would go and visit her family up in, uh, Quebec city. And I just had such fun, fun, fun memories of that. I remember when they got married, like those, that amazing party where like your wine glasses never were empty or we singing like <laughs> pipes and so we were singing like you know there was like Scottish like music happening and Quebecois music happening people singing in French and I remember thinking like this this is I want to be a part of this and so that's a big reason why I took French is because that that culture was introduced to me when I was very young but I ended up uh, studying post-colonial Franco-Algerian women's writing. That was what my thesis was on. Wow, and, okay. uh, and it's funny, like there's some really interesting connections to, you know, what we talk about on the podcast, these ideas of identity, um, immigration, um, colonialism, even. Um, we're kind of just getting into like future episodes that um, kind of delve into that a little bit more. But I came to work at the library and 
last year um, when we we went remote a month after I got this job in access services at Glickman. And so they were like, well, Julia speaks French, but we'll kind of put her in Anna's hands. Anna's the, the <laughs> go. And we were both like, we both headed off immediately, like both big podcast fans. And just in working on those oral histories, we both were like, man, there's like a lot here. There's a lot to work with. This could be a really cool thing. And one thing led to another. And here we are. I feel really, really fortunate that the timing worked out. And, you know, one of the silver linings of COVID was this podcast. No, that is very, very cool that you kind of jumped into this entire world that wasn't necessarily your background, which I find super, super interesting. So, Anna, Anna, how about your story? Can you tell us about your life and you were growing up? So I was actually born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but I did not stay there very long. My parents moved out here when I was one um, and I grew up in Brunswick. One of the things that I guess has sort of like shaped my career and interest in history and libraries is a visit I took to the Pajebscot History Center is its current name, but it was at the time called the Pajebscot Uh, Historical Society here in Brunswick. They have a historic house um, that was the home of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, um, who is a obviously well-known Civil War hero, particularly in New England. Not really so much in other parts of the country. Most folks in Maine and New England have heard of him. And I went to that museum and that was when I realized that that was a thing that somebody could do as a job. Like you could have a job to teach people about old objects and about history and part of your job could be working with like the actual old stuff and that was kind of when I had the idea that I wanted to work in a museum and it was a a longish road to get there. I also heavily debated majoring in theater in college um, but Ultimately, I ended up majoring in history and minoring in theater at um, Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. My almost entire extended family still lives out there. So I ended up going to college out there, too. And it was fantastic. After I graduated, I worked in museums for a while, um, but I couldn't seem to get any job in an archive uh, without a master's degree. So I thought, now's the time. I am going to go to grad school. And I ended up going to Simmons University in Boston um, for their uh, dual master's degree in history and archives management. And that was a great time. I actually wrote my thesis on um, immigrant millworking women, like perceptions of immigrant millworking women in Maine. And here, here is where I tell you my secret. It's not a secret. Everybody, everybody here knows. I was going to say, it's not going to be a secret much longer. Yeah. I, I don't speak French. That's a big time secret. So I really, I realized that there were all of, all of these documents that were not as accessible to me when learning about textile mills in Maine, because I didn't speak French. Um, and at that time, I also learned that the Franco-American collection at USM existed. Um, so that was really exciting. 
Um, and then I ended up coming back and getting a job there um, a few years later because I'm interested in immigration history, labor history, and um, ethnic studies, all that kind of thing. And I actually, as I mentioned, I don't speak French. I studied Spanish um, from the time I was a kid through college. Um, so I do have like some idea of what like, you know, the cognate words are. But one of the things that I'd really like to do is is learn French going forward. All right, cool. So Maureen, what's your story? I was born and raised in Lewiston. I am Franco-American. In fact, my mama and papa lived with us as I was growing up. I still have uh, cousins up in Canada and Fortunately, through the years and everything, families have dispersed and sure. uh, we've lost touch. But uh, I grew up with all of that. Went away to college. I sort of got out of French, not because I was no longer, not because I had lost interest, but because I couldn't imagine what to do with it for a living. So I went through a few undergrad majors <laughs> Uh, it went on to grad school in speech communication and immediately to library school afterward. Again, not sure what I was going to do with my first master's. Sure. Sure. Uh, went to Simmons, just as Anna did for library school. Um, stayed in Boston a, a few years. Out of the blue, got a job back in my hometown where... To this day, I still am. Then when um, Julia and Anna mentioned the podcast, it sounded like a, a great idea. I follow a few podcasts myself, and I thought, ooh, a chance to practice my French and to bring out my speech communication background. So the rest is history. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Very cool. So obviously we'll transition to talking about this incredible podcast. Um, Julie, you talked a little bit about it kind of during your intro, but and you talked about it quite a bit during the very first uh, pilot episode about where the idea came from. Maybe you can give kind of more background, kind of what are these oral histories that you are talking about and how did that lead to this incredible podcast? When we all went remote last year, there was kind of this shuffle for my job on paper at the library is very front facing. I'm circulation desk. So I'm, you know, dealing with people. And so there, obviously we can't do that from home. So there was this shuffle to figure out like, what, what work are we going to give people? A lot of that work was in digital projects. So not just at the Franco collection, but um, in, in case folks don't know, we have um, a great special collection here at the Portland campus. Um, we have a huge collection of these these digital resources. One of the big reasons for putting me on the Franco stuff is because a lot of these oral histories need transcriptions. So when we um, when we upload them to our online repository, um, we like to upload them with what we call metadata. So it's like all of the big information. What is it? Who's in it? Where does it take place? When did it happen? And also have a transcription of um, what the what's in the recording, obviously. A lot of the recordings are in French and they're in the French, uh, they're in Franco-French, which is really interesting because for me, that was almost like learning a different language than the one that I, the, the one, the French that I 
learned that I got my master's in in France. Um, it's beautiful. It has its own cadence. It has its own vocabulary. It has, you know, this mix of English. I love it. It's absolutely beautiful. These oral histories, the histories themselves, I'm trying not to get off track, um, are from Franco's, mostly in Maine, a, a lot of focus on the Franco's from and in Lewiston. Um, but there's also some other kind of, there's some other cool stuff peppered in there from all over New England. Um, some of them were recorded by people going into um, into people's homes and talking to them about their family traditions, their holiday traditions, how did they grow up, their life stories. You know, there's some really um, interesting different styles of how, how people would kind of conduct these oral histories. There are folks singing songs, there's folks giving recipes, you know, and as far as the sort of table of ones that I was working from, they, it kind of ran the gamut. There was a Blake Street residence collection. Um, there were, um, there was an old radio recording that was featured in, uh, in last month's episode. Um, one particular series where folks were clearly being asked specifically about their holiday traditions, like their traditions around Christmas. There, it, it's, it's funny, you wouldn't think that people sort of just talking about their everyday lives. Like I wouldn't want to talk to someone. <laughs> I wouldn't think it would be really interesting right. for me to like talk yeah. about, you know, what I, what I had for breakfast, what I would make for but it's, it's riveting. It's, it's, it's enchanting in, in a way. And I don't know, maybe Anna, um, just as someone, you know, the collection way better than me. I just kind of know the work that was thrown at me and how I just kind of got locked into it. But Anna probably has some more insight on the oral histories that I don't. It's interesting, too, that you say that you think that it wouldn't be interesting if we interviewed you, Julia Rhinelander, about your food traditions. Um, but it turns out that a lot of people that get approached to be interviewed are like that, too. They always say, oh, are, are you sure you want to ask me about that? Or, oh, I don't know. I'm not very interesting. Maybe you want to talk to somebody else. Or, oh, I'd be happy to interview someone, but I don't think... I don't think I should be interviewed. I I totally understand that mindset, but you are 100% right. There's always, it's always interesting. that There are a, a good amount of sort of themed, I guess, oral histories like Julia was talking about. We have um, some that are also um, people discussing what it was like to be in the orphanage as a child. Um, so there's an orphanage series there's um, a uh, series veterans too. series. Um, and uh, then there's just sort of like little one-off interviews of people talking about their lives, talking about their families and their businesses, um, talking about Lewiston um, and how that has changed since they were younger. Um, some people, like Julia was saying, talk about experiences in Maine, and some people talk about how, like, you know, they grew up in Massachusetts, but they ended up in Maine, and um, some people are talking about, like, the veterans particularly talking about their experience overseas, all kinds of stuff, and a lot of them, I would say, too, have Franklish elements, um, even the ones that are in English. Um, and I'm sure that the ones are that are in French also do. It's a great time. And it's really, I've had the opportunity to interview a few people for oral histories. And it's been, it's 
been a great time. There's something really powerful about sitting in those interviews and being present with someone and one-on-one and asking them questions. Like you never know, you know, you can open in and tell them, well, tell me your story, but there's always kind of going to be questions in the back of your mind. Like you have to be so present when you're talking with someone, you have to be sensitive too. like, there's things that they might not, there's information they might not want to divulge. Like you have to learn to kind of read people. And there's very, um, Molly Graham, uh, is the oral historian for Noah. So, um, she's essentially documenting oral histories related to climate change, uh, which is really fascinating but she was really she's been really helpful kind of instructing us not just on the podcast but on oral histories because we hope with all of these interviews that we're doing are going into our our collection they're going to be part of it um and the hope is that more people will be inspired to come and give their oral histories you know there's a lot of older francos who won't be around much longer whose stories we want to preserve and and um and promote protect but there's also a lot of really awesome young francos like yourself jesse like folks that we really we want to make sure that they're a part of this collection and that the collection evolves with the community that's awesome i'm I'm, I'm going sorry maureen oh sir yeah i'll i'll second the uh the comments about how listening is so important with these oral histories it's you know validating the stories of regular people we're an academic collection so people may get the impression of higher ed is being uh, pretentious or whatever, but getting out there and respecting the stories that are in our community is so important. The point you guys made is actually something I've run up against, even with members of my own family being reluctant to speak to me because they don't think that it's necessarily interesting that the story they have to tell. Though I do appreciate Julia using the word beautiful to refer to the French that she's heard only because I've heard time and time again from people on this podcast and listeners of the podcast who send me emails about how uh, how much they were criticized for the French that they spoke growing up and how that gave them a difficult time. So to have someone refer to it as beautiful is definitely going to mean quite a bit uh, to a number of listeners on this podcast, which I find very, very awesome. I mean that from the from the bottom of my heart too, and I I think especially having being in in Maine where we have this huge influx of of French speakers coming um, that from all over the world, we there's no wrong way to to if it's your language it's your language and and I think in particular um, you know there's something very um, elitist and colonialist about about saying that it's not a beautiful language i and i think there's something you know you have me you have me on the record saying that uh but i do i genuinely i love the language i kind of um i I wish more people listen to it in that way uh but i did want to ask kind of maybe talk about the process or when the decision was made to go from having all these amazing discussions on that are recorded so we are going to turn this for sure into a podcast and maybe talk about when you guys first started having started a podcast. I know that quite a bit of discussion of the format we wanted to use for the podcast and how what we ended up with was not exactly what I first thought of when we started. So maybe we can talk about kind of the process of getting going for the point where we have these awesome recordings to kind of what we the format of 
what you ended up with? What happened, I would say, is that Julia came to me and said, hey, I know we've like discussed podcasts before, like maybe we should make one. And I said, oh, that's a great idea. I would love to do something that would showcase the collection and not only the oral histories, but also some of the documents and objects. And then I said, actually, also, I think Maureen was planning an audio series of some kind. So maybe we should all come together on this. Um, And that's how like the three sections, I guess, of the podcast came into being. And Julia, you can take it away from here. Yeah, I think that 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 pretty much covers it. It happened really organically as, you know, kind of waiting on the funding and figuring out the logistics of of that uh, and kind of getting approval of the board and our higher-ups here at the library. Well, getting approval wasn't a question for the higher-ups, but I think it's I guess what I'm trying to say is the process, the creative process was incredibly organic. So I just kind of, as I was listening to these oral histories and transcribing, I kind of just started making a table of with different themes and then the episodes and kind of timestamps of where I thought would be a good little quote for each thing. So, you know, it started pretty broad, like language, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, why speaking French is important to the folks that were giving these oral histories, but also music, veterans, we, we're going to have some, some killer episodes on, on Franco veterans for sure. Gosh, food, holidays, oh, ghost stories. I'm so, awesome. I'm so excited for that episode. Lots of awesome ghost stories about, I don't know, probably like the Lugaru and um, the Chasse Galerie. I love the Chasse Galerie. Yeah. And oh, yeah, there's some really great, some great stuff. But anyway, it was just everything kind of just started separating itself out into these episode ideas in my mind. And I kind of shared that document with Anna and Maureen and they started filling in. Um, we talked to our digital projects person at the time, Jess, and she's like, she had some great ideas. She has some Franco connections. And, you know, then that kind of evolved into, okay, how do we logistically do this? What equipment do we need? What, what do we need funding for? So there was proposals and talking to our special projects person here at the library, Stacy Calderwood. And then around, and it's like the timeline, it's like we wanted to do the first episode in January or something. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, like the timeline just kept getting bumped down and we were like, we'll wait. We would just want to make it good. We sure. want, we want it to be the best it can be. And so by the time it got down to, you know, to the spring and towards like the middle end of the spring semester, um, we kind of, we, the, the pilot episode kind of started taking shape as we wrote it together. Um, we had some great interviews with two board members. Um, if folks listen, they'll hear Doris Bono and um, and Mary Rice DeVos. And yeah, and then it's kind of the production schedule's just been moving and taking it a month at a time. And yeah, Maureen, would you add anything to that? I'll second your comments, Julia, about the organic nature of it. And also, it's amazing how we get one episode out and the ideas are flowing. We're already pretty much right into the next episode. There's such there's so much material to work with. It's, it has been amazing. 
I feel so lucky too to be working like Anna and Maureen between them both like their knowledge of the the sub of what we have at the collection and Maureen I feel like every time we go to do la collection parle there's always like something in the back pocket there's always something and it's I just feel very lucky to to work with yeah. Anna and Maureen and it's amazing there's always something even for all of the years I've been working with the library and with the Franco-American collection, there is always something new that we come upon. One thing that I know when I first started my podcast, where you got a ton of comments, I would say almost half right off the bat were about the music we chose for our intro and our outro of the show. So I'm curious, I mean, how did you guys decide what you were going to use when you started your podcast? We are so lucky and I cannot, I I want to like sing his name from the mountaintops. <laughs> Rob Sylvain was one of the first people we talked to um, about the podcast and his music. If people don't know his, um, Rob's been a musician in, in the main music scene forever. He's played in um, Acadian bands like Boreal Tordu and the Acadian Aces. Um, fun fact, I actually met Rob not un- unknowingly years ago because I got invited by a friend, uh, our mutual friend, to one of his like famous New Year's Eve parties where his band, the Acadian Aces, were like playing in his living room. And it was one of the best New Year's I've ever had. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so I, we got on the Zoom call and I was like, I think I've been in your living room. <laughs> it was a very main, a very uh, main moment. He, his most recent project, his solo album, Meme's Notebook, was inspired by um, a notebook of uh, traditional Acadian folk tunes that he was um, that he inherited after his meme died. And he did a ton of research. I mean, I don't think folks necessarily realize how much research and time he put into learning where the songs come from with folk music as with with any folk tradition. A lot of there's a lot of shifts and changes, different melodic things happening over the years. And he adapted the songs in French and English. So there's a version of each song in French and English um, for his Meme's Notebook album. Um, You can buy it on his website. Um, It's fantastic. It's lovely. And he gifted us this, you know, he said, gave us free reign to use this music for the podcast. And we are so, so, so lucky because there is such a wealth of um, awesome music on that album. And the song that we use for, um, with the exception of one in the music episode, which he's featured in, we use his song, Cher Leonore, or Dear Lenore. And thanks, Anna. She put the link to his website in the in the chat. If we could feature that somewhere on the publicity. Yeah. So yeah, we we did an episode with him, and Yay. I think I think it's probably Micro. I think it might actually be our highest rated episode, most listened to episode we've ever had. Yeah, he um, he's so talented and also so insightful. Um, talking about his own heritage, his Franco and Acadian heritage, and what his music means in that context, what folk music means to him. The conversation with him was just fantastic and hoping to, um, I'd love to have him back at some point. And I just want everyone to go and listen to his music right now. It's so good. 
and such a nice guy on top of the talent. Very cool. Although I now need uh, on the bucket list is being invited to one of his uh, New Year's parties. That seems yeah, to be what I have to do at this point. Yeah, gosh, you already here. Sounds like a blast. Yeah. <laughs> really great. Let's celebrate the Réveillon with uh, Robert yeah. Sylvain. Very cool. <laughs> very, very, very awesome. All right. Very cool. No, I like that. Now, I guess maybe I'll just get into the first episode because we talked to Dr. Mary Rice DeFoss, and there was a bunch of stuff that came up here um, that I saw was super, super interesting, including something that we had talked about um, before, uh, which is on our podcast, um, the whole idea of people having experiences or going, having done things like essentially their entire life and having no idea that there's a cultural connection to it and kind of finding that out later. Going through these oral histories, I am curious, I mean, how, how much do you guys come across that? How does that impact kind of that person's perspective on kind of the story they're telling? Because I think for me, the people I've come across, that's definitely the case. For me, I would say that I've noticed that that comes more frequently from uh, younger generations of Francos, um, perhaps uh, whose parents or grandparents had become more assimilated and um, consequently the traditions just sort of became things that they did in their family instead of like sort of realizing the broader scope of the traditions um, as as coming from their um, ethnic background. Yeah, I would probably add you know, the you know if somebody has been you know, not not only the generation but not raised with the explicit discussions of being Franco. At least when I was growing up, we were sort of immersed in it, and it was stranger to encounter somebody who didn't live with some of these traditions. I, I wonder, too, um, just with the mixed, you, you know, Maureen, it seems you grew up in a household that was pretty strong and, and proud of these Franco traditions. But a lot of folks grew up with um, with parents and grandparents who didn't want them to speak French, who didn't necessarily want to be uh, have that label that, you know, there was kind of a lot of forced assimilation that happened. And so, um, well, these traditions might not have been explicitly named as Franco, um, there, there's now kind of this coming out and saying, oh, wow, I, this is something that has made me a part of who I am, however small it is, whether it's, you know, making pea soup after you've, after you've made ham or, you know, like, right. Meat pies or the vivillon, you know, midnight mass, all of these, these elements in a group of people that was had to kind of all of the pros and cons of, of assimilation over the years, you know, this this is the kind of realization, these are the kind of realizations that that happen, it seems to me, based on the conversations I've had. Mike talks about it all the time. He's through the podcast discovered a bunch of traditions where he didn't realize. And for me, I mean, one of the big ones for me, I, I, it wasn't until I started this podcast that I realized Chinese pie was at the Xinhua, and it was actually something that was super common. And every time, at least for me, when I learn, you know, when I learn about something new and I, it changes kind of how I reflect on the memories associated with the times I've experienced that or I've had that. So for me, it's really, really neat. 
when that kind of thing happens. Well, especially if it's food, then it's connected to the people who made it, the people that you eat it with when you eat it. Like, what was it? Tartin chinois? Was that what that's it was? Tartin yeah. chinois, Chinese pie. Yeah. What's what's in the Chinese pie? I don't know. It's a it's a it's a lot like a shepherd's pie. Okay. Uh, at least the version. Uh, the uh, one familiar version is uh, ground beef, corn, onions, and mashed potatoes all in one dish. I think there might be other variants. I don't know. Was that the version you had, Jesse? Yeah, you pretty much pretty much nailed it there. But yeah, I had no idea. And I came up here, even some, obviously in Quebec City now, um, but people talk about it all the time. Like it's just a normal thing. And I had, again, had no idea that it was wasn't just like a thing my family did. No, that was kind of awkward and weird that it was part of a much larger thing. And as you mentioned, now all of a sudden you have the memories of the time you've had that. And, you know, and that's very cool. For me, it's very, very interesting. We did want to get to, of course, we had talked about the episode on music. And there obviously, first of all, did you know right from the jump that that was going to be episode two? Like you're going to have pilot episode, then episode two is going to be music. Talk about kind of how that came about. And there's a super interesting discussion also uh, from Robert Sylvain, which is I come across quite a bit up here. The whole idea of losing your language, you lose your culture. Um, and he talks about that. And for me, that's a big deal because I can't tell you how many people I've run into up here when I tell them I'm Franco-American, but I just speak English, especially when I started here. Um, they look at me like, well, if you don't speak French, how can you be Franco? And they're like, well, there's more to just, there's more to culture than the language. And I, it's funny, I had some woman, she's super, super nice. She's actually running for mayor here, looks right at me and said, well, what else is there? Like she was completely confused by the idea that I might've, that there might be something else besides just the language, which I find very different. I mean, how we approach cultural identity, I find very, very different up here just generally. But anyway, so you talk about the idea of music, the decision to make an episode on music and how music kind of plays into the whole idea of cultural identity, because that comes across big time in this episode. The idea, I think, for the music episode being the second one happened uh, very quickly after the month of January. And that is because January was when we hosted Rob Sylvain um, at the Franco-American Collection, virtually, of course, um, to um, do a presentation of Memmi's Notebook, um, where he plays and sings and then talks a little bit about each song. Obviously, he doesn't get through every song on his album because they're all so interesting. And you could literally, like Julia and I, um, when we spoke to him, like we talked about like a couple of songs, but it took like more than an hour. So there's like so much, there's so much more to know about it out there, um, which is fantastic. And he, um, as Julia said, he has done an incredible work um, on that project. So we had already had this Zoom recording available of his performance. And then we emailed him and we asked him, would he be willing to do like a podcast specific interview to talk more in depth about his songs and that is how that interview came about and just to speak to this uh, this sort of bigger and maureen and i feel you know obviously i think you'll i hope you'll have more to say on this as well but the whole 
language is culture thing has played out in a lot of these conversations. And um, I find it really interesting, right? Because there's, there's the, there's the grain of truth there, right? Is that, sure. you know, and I'm sure Jesse is you're learning French. I imagine that, and, and having reached a more, at this point in my life, I've spoken French for more of my life than I haven't. There's a part of me that I can express in French that I can't express in English. And likewise, right? Yeah. And, and I'm sure you're learning and I'd be interested too, to hear, I guess, like I'm used to interviewing people. So I'd be interested to hear from you as well about how you feel like that expression of yourself and, and your connection to your history is changing. You know, obviously if you have members of your family that speak this language and and you don't, that's gotta be an impetus. I'd, I'd imagine, but I think that it's, particularly in Franco culture in New England. And I, I don't want to overstep because I'm not Franco. I, you know, it just, but it seems like more broadly in communities that have been forced to assimilate over the years, there's a real danger in excluding, you know, particularly younger folks who might not speak the language because they're, parents and grandparents were acting out of what they saw was a necessity to be safe, to be included, to, to create community. Um, it's a shame that those circumstances were the, we you know, happened the way they were. We all know that the Francos were victims of the KKK, that there's, you know, there were reasons for, of safety that people didn't want to be identified as Franco. But I think that there, what I loved about that conversation with Rob and the fact that he has the album in both French and English, he, um, you know, he's learned French as he's grown up. He didn't necessarily speak it growing up. He's learned it as an adult and it's his French. You know, there was, there's an ownership over the, the French that he speaks and the French that he sings, the French that he writes music in. His, you know, I love how he calls it his grandmother tongue. It's not his mother, yeah. grandmother tongue. And if we're kind of, if we want to distill this, sometimes I've, I'm a little verbose, I'm sorry, but if we want no, to into talking about culture and language, this idea of a grandmother tongue that you come back to and, and reconnect or connect anew to something in the past, there's something really special in that too. I think that there's a lot of, it seems to me from talking to folks and reading about Franco America, if we want to kind of normalize it, but there's a lot of younger folks who want to reconnect and have a lot of shame around not speaking the language. Shame that I don't think necessarily belongs to them. It's not their fault. I love to see these other connections to culture that happen in food, that happen in uh, festivals, dances, music, Acadian and Franco music. It's so awesome. It's so fun to listen to. You just want to dance to it, right? Yes, there's a grain of truth in the fact that there's a lot of language and expression and selfhood that happens with language, but there's so much more. There's so, so, so much more. Um, so I don't know if Anna and Maureen especially. Yeah, and with everything that divides people in this world, we can use all the things that unite us. So if it is food, or at least if not, you know, at least bring people together. So if it is food, if it is dance rather than language, so be it. The language is beautiful. 
but so are these other aspects. And if it's bringing people together rather than tearing them apart, I think we could all use, we could use more of that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I know a big motivator for this podcast was the fact growing up, I always heard the narrative that Franco-Americans, if they're not dead, are dying. It was kind of the narrative that I heard. Uh, in fact, St. Uh, Jean-Baptiste, uh, there was an article that was sent to me by listeners and teachers I have up here, uh, both. Um, pretty big publication up here actually ran a story about the last Franco-Americans, and it highlighted three different individuals, two of which I know really well. And so the, what we're trying to say is the they're not the last Franco-Americans. <laughs> I mean, they're awesome people. They're not the last Franco-American. Last Franco-American has not been born yet. So that that is definitely something that uh, comes up quite a bit. I think I saw some chatter about that on Twitter. I think David Vermet responded very much in the same the same vein. Like this, this there's a lot of good information here, but the lens through which it's the story is being told um, implies that there's an end. And it really kind of just with the vibrance of this community that I've experienced thus far, it, there's nothing dead about it. <laughs> Exactly. Sorry. Um, I was going to say that I, I have heard that too. And I have heard that from Franco's. Of course. (laughs) Like, and that it always makes me sad to hear that because it seems like there are so many people out there who think that they're the last one for, for whatever reason, whether it's because they did learn French, but their children didn't, or they didn't learn French. Um, but their parents did. And, you know, whether it's because they um, are still religious or they aren't still religious or they still have um, some of some of the food traditions or they don't, or maybe they feel like their family has dispersed throughout the country and moved away and things like that. I think it's a, a misconception that that I, I hope we can all work to to rectify. Because that misconception, in a way, fuels the very, the very problem. Because how are we going to attract people to these events and things like the collection, like the podcast, when people think it's not going to exist in a day or two? So it, it, it's a, it's a catch twenty, or it's a self-fulfilling cycle. I think there's one more note too. I would say about the language piece which is that, not you know, language isn't the only element of culture, but there's also, we have to acknowledge too, that the English hegemony makes it really hard for other languages and other cultures even to take up space. And so, you know, our, our hope is eventually to have every episode of ours transcribed and, and read in um, French as it would be, as it's spoken by, um, by Francos and French Canadians. Um, and uh, our, our hope in doing that is to kind of just, you know, stretch the French muscle a little bit more. And um, I guess like flex the French muscle and where that came from. <laughs> But, you know, that is really real. Like, the, you, you know, English is spoken everywhere. And I know at Middlebury, you know, they have those excellent language programs in the summer. I'm so, so, so lucky I was able to go there where you sign a language pledge that says you're not going to speak anything else but that language. 
all the whole six weeks that you're there. And it really um, kind of forcing folks hand to do that. Also, I think that there's a place for that too, where it's like the more French we can plug into every episode, the better. Um, because you know, and the brain is amazing. It's never too, it's never too late to learn. And I'm used as the, as, as having taught language and having, you know, you know, having the bilingual brain, it's like, I do, I, I hope that more people learn French, learn other languages. Well, I will say you guys had an entire interview in French in your second episode, your discussion with Lise Pelletier, somebody else we've had on the podcast, super, super interesting person. Now, was there any reluctance at all to have a significant portion in French for fear that there might be a certain part of your audience that would not be able to connect? First of all, I was just personally, I'm going to say I was super psyched because I understood the entire thing. So big ups to BLI. So I was excited about that. But you know, was there any kind of reluctance to be like, you know what, maybe there's a large part of this audience that will not understand this conversation if we're doing it in French? Going into this podcast, we really, the vision was a bilingual podcast, and it still is, um, to have a French and an English version. And it's just like resources and time, you know, we still have our full workloads here at the library. So that's been hard to, to manage as well. But um, it, we know it'll happen eventually. Any any resources that you have to connect us with up in Quebec would be awesome. But, um, you know, we knew going into it and it's, you know, the if it really felt like we were honoring our francophone listeners that you know in hopes that we can draw more people in and kind of normalize the idea of moving between the two languages because that's been in the franco tradition for generations and that felt like it was again coming back to this idea of the collection representing the community that it serves that felt like, it, in, in, in fact, I would go so far as to say, Anna and Maureen, you can correct me, that that was, there was no hesitancy because we knew we were making a statement in doing that. Um, and my hope is that we can do it more and have more friend, more and more French content, more and more French oral histories. Bien dit. <laughs> well put. Well, I did want to just mention one thing, you guys, because that episode talks about Shiak, which I thought was very cool. So if you just explain kind of what that is, because I'm I'm not way into it. Like within the past two weeks, all of a sudden I'm I'm way into it now. Yeah. So what I'm well, I'm curious what you know, or essentially it's how do I I don't want to stop on you toes be saying this. It sounds like Franklish, right? There's you can there's a phrase I remember when I was teaching French showing my kids, introducing them to this Chiac, which is essentially a, a dialect. It's a language spoken in mostly in the Canadian Maritimes. So we're talking New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, those areas where French is still spoken. You hear phrases like, uh, j'ai crossé la street, Absolutely. right? Yeah, there's, it sounds like Franklish to the English or the French ear, but there is, there are rules. It's standardized. It is, a, it is a language. I hesitate. I say it's like Franklish, but it's not Franklish, right? There's, it's, it's standardized. There, it has its own set of rules, and it's. I don't know much more about it other than that that it exists. That there, are, there's a small community of folks that still speak it, um, and that it's um, kind of very much an evolution of the anglophone and francophone worlds kind of colliding. Jesse, do you have any more information? What have you been to do a deep dive into chefs? 
Well, in the past couple of weeks, it's kind of a kind of run of my story. So this past Friday, I actually ended up backstage at a radio radio concert. So we were able to go back and meet the group afterwards. And they, all their music is in Shiag. And so being able to talk to them about how people were on both sides, like the, the English speakers were giving them a hard time about having bad English. And the French speakers are giving them a hard time about having bad French, but they are able to use this, I find super interesting, super unique language and make really awesome music with it that connects with an audience. And the audience is very much there. I thought it was super interesting. So that's kind of how I discovered this entire thing. It's also, and I just I just verified online too, it is specific, it's a, it's a dialect of Acadian French. So you'll actually hear on one of the on um, one of Rob Sylvain's bands, Boreal Tordu, they have this great tune called Sonneville Station that's very, very much in Chiac. It's it's really fun. And there's a video, we actually posted it on our blog for that particular episode. There's a video of them performing it at um uh I think it was an Acadian festival up near Fort Kent. It's fantastic. There's a lot of energy in the song. But it's a it's a fascinating one of my other favorite musicians that I actually we talked about a little bit in the interview with Lise Pelletier is Lisa Leblanc. She's Acadian. She she calls her music le folk trash. It's fantastic. It's, it's so far from trash. It's so wonderful. Uh, the songs Craft uh, Dinner and um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the other one that I love. Official. Official and the craft dinner are two of my favorite songs by her, but she also sings a lot in, in Chef. And it's very cool. You guys posted a lot of videos from groups that were mentioned in that episode. If you go to like the web page associated with it, including a performance of Jacuzzi by Radio Radio, which is on there, which I thought was kind of cool. I was a fan of that. Now, the next thing though, episode three, did you talk to kind of legends? Not kind of, an absolute legend among us Franco-Americans, Paul Perret. First of all, how did that come about? Did you know from the beginning that we need a Paul Perret episode? Or was it more of a, we need to get somebody to talk about, you know, French media. Let's maybe reach out to Paul Perret. Again, super interesting guy. Someone who's incredibly well-known, who's been a leader in the Franco-American scene forever. Just an awesome, awesome individual. When we uh, when we were talking about that theme, he was one of the names that came to mind, and we had reached out to a few different people, and uh, fortunately, he he was available and was gracious enough to come up to Lewiston and uh, and share his story. But we had expected an interesting interview, but it was gold. No, I'm, I can only imagine that that was an amazing time to be able to sit down with him in person, which is something I very much hope I get a chance to do before too long, because like you mentioned, it's just a, you never know where that conversation is going. <laughs> so it is super. I'm sure he'd be amenable to sitting for an interview. Yeah, he's fantastic. And I, I would hate for him to to think that we we kind of like for that episode, we had a bunch of ideas of just folks who'd been involved with Franco news, French language newspapers, especially. Um, and the stars just aligned with, with that interview. Um, 
to be honest. And um, gosh, he's fantastic. And his whole life story, I mean, I think we definitely want to have him back to do, to sit for an oral history as well. There were so many questions I wanted to ask him about his life and, you know, his writing, his career, everything that we just didn't have time for it to stay on track. Well, I suppose I would add that I did not even get to meet him. It was a big shame. I was down the hall and I didn't know that he had to leave at a particular time. And uh, when I came down to record for the Archivist Corner, he had already gone. And it was such a shame because I um, had hoped to at least get to meet him. But if we do end up contacting him for an oral history, then I'm sure I will. But it was a lovely interview to listen to. One thing that did, I mean, kind of alluded to in that conversation, actually, with all is like you asked about kind of what's next for younger Francos looking to connect with their heritage. What I found kind of interesting, and first of all, I love this question. Uh, and you kind of spawned to talk about how, you know, his kids ran away from uh, their French, their French language, French heritage. And for me, this is something Mike and I talk about a lot uh, because for us, it's important to stress that, uh, Franco-Americans, the length, the culture there is not just something you find in a history book. It's still here. It's something that's going to be here. And that's something we go out of our way to make sure that we have that we have episodes that stress that. So we're not just telling a history lesson. So I'm wondering if that is something you are that actively crosses your mind as you sit down to decide kind of how you want to plan out different episodes for your podcast and maybe what you want to include in future podcasts. You know, one thing where I think it influences us is in wanting to get the variety of Franco-American stories to have a um, more inclusive narrative, because uh, yet the traditional narrative of uh, the people coming to work in the mills and settling in Petit Canada is important, but it doesn't reflect about Franco-Americans who lived outside the Petit Canadas. It doesn't reflect the variety of experiences. You know, some were business owners, some went into the military, so on and so forth. So I think getting the richer, I'm trying to think of a better word than tapestry, but richer tapestry of the Franco experience is important. I think that's exactly that. That's exactly what I say as well. I think that that we talked about that a bit with Doris Bono in the first episode, how, you know, coming back to this idea, Anna, that we were kind of joking about how it's like, no one really thinks that their story is important, you know, if you're approached for an oral history, right? And that she has these friends who she wants to sit for oral histories and they think, well, why would they want to talk to me? What do I have to offer? And I, she mentioned specifically exactly what you just referenced, Maureen, is that folks tend to think, well, okay, if you're Franco, you had grandparents, great-grandparents in the mills, that there's that, you know, this story. And it's true that our next episode will be about mapping Franco Lewiston and how the, the physical topography of the city was shaped around these mills, right? Like, it's not to deny that that's a huge part of the history, 
but of course that's not all, you know, there were people from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic strata who were a part of this community and making sure that those stories are included in the collection is, is important. And I think too, just the fact that we're audio, as you know, radio and podcasts, like they're reaching such a broad audience. Now it's really one of the best ways to amplify voices and amplify stories. And I think it's a perfect, a perfect medium for, for that. No, I think it's all been said. Um, I would just add that we have an upcoming companion show that perhaps Julia can go a little bit more into. That's what I was absolutely going to transition to as kind of the grand finale of this interview, because this has been an absolute blast. So I appreciate you doing it for me. This is cool. It's been such a fun uh, evolution of this podcast that WMPG 90.9 here in Portland, our university community radio, um, a kind of beloved institution in Portland, has will begin airing our show this month. I think they're going to start at episode one and they'll air it every month. And they also uh, were in talks about doing kind of a weekly half hour live uh, talk show. Uh, the working title right now is Radio Franco. And it's going to be bilingual, hopefully, hopefully a lot of French uh, conversations with um, Francophone Mainers uh, and or folks who have um, Francophone or Franco history. Um, but MPG is really looking to have content uh, in different different languages, folks from different backgrounds on the on the station. I'll be interviewing folks in uh, French, English, Franglish, any combination thereof. Uh, once a week, um, we're probably, there's no set date yet. I think getting through this first <laughs> few weeks of the semester will be necessary. I do have my access services duties, but, um, I'll be volunteering doing that starting this fall semester. Jesse, if you want to come on, practice your French, I'd be happy Absolutely. to have you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's a really exciting thing. Um, Lots of other, hopefully, some other cool digital projects, particularly in audio, happening with the library, too, where this is, for the libraries as a whole, this is kind of um, a fun experiment as well. Like, what ways can we broadcast and promote the services that we have here, not just for researchers, but um, for members of the community? I think that's terrific. I think it's important to realize that there is... A market out there for the stories that you guys are telling, which I think surprised me and Michael. We started, we're like, we'll probably do this and we'll get, you know, three people at the Franco American Center to listen. Um, but sure enough, it's took off way beyond what we had ever would have dreamed of. You know, we got a lot more listeners than we thought we would. We got every continent, but Antarctica, we're still waiting for you, Antarctica, to join the party. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it is an amazing story that people want to hear. It's cool. And we want, just as a side note too, if you're Franco and if you want to sit for an oral history, please, we want your stories. We we want them. So come get in touch with us. Our emails are all on the website. Or And not only that, but we can do them on Zoom if you don't live here. Yep. We've done them on Zoom. Well, we have recording equipment now to do them in person. Um, we just come tell us your stories. Your stories matter. So this has been awesome. This, this has been 
Great conversation. So nuts and bolts, where do people find the podcast? How can they get to it? Where can they find you on social media? FrancoPathwaysPod.wordpress.com. And we are available um, on streaming on wherever you get your podcast. You should be able to stream it. So Spotify, Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts. I use Overcast. That's one of my, my preferred, my preferred one. Instagram, I believe, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, FrancoPod. And I think so. Yeah, I'll check. Franco American Pathways is our handle on uh, Facebook. And then Twitter, it's funny, I always like forget the, the actual handles. Twitter is Franco Pathways, at Franco Pathways. So please give us a follow. We're hopefully getting an intern this fall to help us with the social media. It's like, it's enough. It's That's a whole job in and of itself that we'd rather just be creating content. But yeah, so please follow us. Um, and we do do a blog post with every episode with details about what we talk about as well. So keep, uh, you know, sign up for updates on WordPress. And not only that, but if you right now listening are a student at the University of Southern Maine and you are interested in being our social media intern for this podcast, or I'm sorry, not for Jesse's podcast, but for Franco American yeah, Pathways. You can do it for my podcast too. Yeah. Sure. Um, feel free to email me at Anna A N N A dot Faherty F A H E R T Y at Maine dot edu, and that is the best contact for the Franco American collection. You can also visit our website. Um, it's a USM slash Franco American collection. And we have a Franco American collection Facebook page as well. Very awesome. Come work with us. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.